Gracious Father, thank you that we can gather today, that we can celebrate and remember the victory of Christ, his resurrection, his ascending to your right hand, the fact that he promises to come again. Lord, we remember what Jesus said in John 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Father, we we remember, we cherish these promises. God, as we turn our attention to your word now, we pray that what we just sang about, that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, that the Spirit would move and would help us to see Jesus more clearly. Father, please answer those prayers. Please take away those things that distract us from seeing you and from beholding the glory of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would take away the fears that we experience in this life and that we would fear only you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please be seated and open your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. Revelation 16. Now, last week, our brother Matt so helpfully walked us through chapter 15, which is the prelude to this chapter. So it turns out, apparently, that in God's providence and God's wisdom, chapter 16 is so immense, it is so weighty, that it requires its own prelude. And as Matt pointed out last week in chapter 15, we see the announcement of what will happen now here in chapter 16, how this chapter will bring to a conclusion, a conclusion of the outpouring of God's wrath on earth. Also in chapter 15, we saw seven plagues or seven blows that were given to seven angels. And these angels uh, will pour these bowls out as the, again, the final expression of God's wrath revealed on earth. Also in chapter 15, last week, we heard the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, which reminds us, it, and, and how we need to be reminded of this, it reminds us that our God is a deliverer. Our, our, our God, just as He showed His glory in Egypt and rescued His people out of Egypt, God will do so once again. He will manifest His glory and show His glory. He will be worshipped. He will forever deliver His people and He will bring them into His joy-filled presence. So we see indeed that God does have a plan. God has a plan. Things will not just carry on indefinitely with seals and trumpets and bowls, with, with, with death being the end of all things, with this life being the end of all things. No, there won't just be more seals and trumpets and bowls and more seals and trumpets and bowls. History is actually moving somewhere. History is moving towards the completion of God's plan. Now, before we immediately just jump in to chapter 16. I want to quickly mention, and oh, how I emphasize that word quickly. God, please let it be so. Quickly, I want to quickly mention 
five themes that we will see running throughout this chapter. And the reason why I want to mention these here up front is so that, number one, we'll recognize them when we see them in the chapter. And it's important to see them and to recognize them in the chapter. And then secondly, hopefully by mentioning them now, and then as we see them, as we walk through the chapter, by God's grace, we'll actually remember these things. We will remember these themes because these are truths that speak to the glory of God. These are truths that speak to uh, and encourage us to worship and to trust. So quickly, here now are five themes that will run throughout this chapter. And the first one is this, number one, the sovereignty of God. That is to say, God has the right to do all that he pleases and he is right when he does all that he pleases. If this chapter shows us anything and teaches us anything, it shows us that God does indeed rule over all It shows us that this earth belongs to Him. In fact, every life belongs to Him. Everyone and everything ultimately stands accountable to God. This chapter loudly preaches. It shows us the truth of Psalm 115 verse 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases. Listen, mankind, praise God, mankind is not sovereign. Politicians, not sovereign. Creation, not sovereign. Mother Nature does not exist. Satan, not sovereign. The beast, not sovereign. But our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Next, number two, the second theme. Noted on your outline, we will see the reality of the stubborn, foolish, hardened human heart. That is to say, left to ourselves, dead in our sin, apart from the grace of God, we will defiantly and suicidally hate God and shake our fist at Him. This is so tragic, but as we will see in this chapter, in the face of overwhelming evidence, in the face of clear judgment and clear consequences, mankind will actually look at God and repeatedly say, how dare you? How dare you bring any kind of judgment to me? How dare you try to rule this world that you have created by your own power and might and wisdom? How dare you remove some of the blessings that I enjoy in this life? How dare you allow me to experience any consequences from my sin? This chapter, I think, reinforces what the rest of the Bible teaches that mankind... We do, apart from Christ, left to ourselves, mankind has a glory problem. We have a glory problem. Yes, sure, we like some of the things that that God has done. We like some of the blessings that God has created us, uh, created and given to us in His creation. But in our sin, we want His blessings, but we don't want God. We want, we, we want some of his good gifts, but we don't want him. And we certainly don't want to see his glory and his holiness as revealed in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this reveals our need. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our sin. And we don't want to see that. 
So Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, where he's, he, again, he's describing the condition of our darkened hearts. He's describing how, how in judgment God will give us over to the sinful things that we long for. And then Paul writes this in Romans 1, 24. He says, therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now look at this next sentence. He says, because they exchanged, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now stop right there. In the Greek text, it is the lie, not a lie. Okay, uh, the, the definite article, the, is clearly in the text. Paul is talking about the fundamental lie that we, apart from Christ, are tempted to believe and want and run after, where we look at God in His glory and we say, I don't want that, I want this. Right? That is the lie that leads us into madness and sin and shame. So, to pick up Paul's thought, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So we have a glory problem. We have a God problem where we want to exchange His glory for something else. But if that is the problem, what is the solution? The solution is the grace of God. The solution is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ that opens our eyes to actually see and love God and to desire His glory and to want to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. The gospel changes us from haters of God to lovers of God, from those who want to trade His glory to those who want to behold His glory and to know Him more and more. Next, the third theme that we'll see emphasized in this chapter is this, the sowing and reaping principle. That is to say, God is perfectly just and righteous in all of his decisions. He is. He is perfectly just and righteous in all of his decisions. As we'll see throughout chapter 16, there's almost a poetic justice to what God brings here as he reveals his wrath. God is allowing, in chapter 16, he is allowing mankind to reap the consequences of, of their sin. And it's not unlike, it's not unlike what we see in other places in Scripture. For example... Remember that in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, as he was afraid of the Israelite people, how they were growing more in numbers, he was fearful of them. Pharaoh gave the command that all the Hebrew boys should be drowned. Throw them in in the Nile River. Just get rid of them. Kill them. Let's do away with them. Pharaoh, remember, Pharaoh... God is not mocked. God is not mocked. And you who thought it was such a good idea to drown all of these babies, what will become of you? What will become of your armies? You will be dead. You will be drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. Why? Because you hated God and you hated His people and you resisted God as He showed you something of His glory. You hardened your heart and you will reap what you have sown. Do you remember Haman 
in the, in the book of Esther, Haman, who was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, Haman, who hated the Jewish people, Haman, who hatched a plot to kill all of the Jewish people who were living in his country. And remember that there was one Jewish man that Haman especially hated, Mordecai. Why? Because Mordecai would not bow down before him and, and Mordecai would not do what everyone else would do and just fall down on their face before him. So what did Haman do? Oh, he had really tall gallows built from which he would hang Mordecai so that everyone could see and behold that Haman, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. What will become of you, Haman? you will hang from those very gallows. People will look upon you and will see what happens when people hate the living God and resist Him. You will die. Galatians 6-7 is as true today as it ever was. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Next, number four on your outline, the fourth theme we will see is the magnitude, the breadth, the intensity of God's actions here. That is to say, we see the words great, the words loud appear repeatedly in the context of these worldwide judgments worldwide judgments that we'll see in chapter 16. In fact, just about everything in this chapter is momentous, it is loud, it is great, it is worldwide in its scope. This is a huge, towering chapter that stands out in the book of Revelation. Let me just give you a sampling of this. In verse 1, God speaks with a loud voice. In verse 2, every person who identifies with the beast, who worships the image of the beast is afflicted by God. In verse 3, God removes the blessing of a functioning ocean and every sea creature dies. In verse 4, all the rivers and springs of water are ruined. In verse 9, we see a blazing, intense, fierce heat coming from the sun that God uses to scorch mankind. In verse 12, the great Euphrates River, which is so long and vast and big, it just dries up. In verse 14, we see Satan deceiving and bringing the kings of the whole world together to fight against God. In verse 18, we see the greatest earthquake that the world has ever known. In verse 19, we see, quote, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. The, the kingdom of the Antichrist. It is destroyed. It is shattered. It is laid waste in darkness. It is made to drink the wrath of God. In verse 21, then we see great hailstones, like a hundred pounds each, falling upon those who hate God throughout this chapter. What do we see in the midst of all this Incredible things. What do we see? We see people continually cursing God. 
continually blaming God. Not blaming their sin, not, not blaming the things that they have done wrong and the justice that, that they deserve. They are blaming and cursing God because he refuses to tolerate evil. He refuses to look away from sin and injustice and he brings righteousness. Remember what Jesus said in John 3.19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Here it is. And people loved what? People loved the darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We see this reality being played out here on a worldwide scope. Lastly, one last thing. Number five, we see the zeal and the love of God for his people. It is crystal clear that God's people are not the target of his wrath and judgment. God fully intends, in fact, God fully intends to use this chapter to care for and to encourage them. God goes to great lengths in this chapter, in chapter 16, uh, to be very clear as to who will receive his wrath and who will receive his grace and his encouragement. Revelation 16 reinforces the truth of 1 Thessalonians 5. which says, God has not destined us for wrath. Praise God, He has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have eyes to see it, Revelation 16 reinforces the truth of Romans 8.1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so... With these five themes in mind, with the theme of God's sovereignty, the reality of the hardness of the human heart, the principle of sowing and reaping, understanding the scope and the magnitude of God's work here, and understanding the zeal and the love that God has for his people, with all that in mind, we're now ready. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Here's what we read. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Stop there. For these seven angels, it is go time. This is the last of God's wrath that will be poured out on the earth. And these angels will pour these bowls out, as we'll see, in rapid succession. They will rapidly pour these things out upon the earth. What exactly will happen? Look at verse 2. Verse 2. We read, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people, the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So what do we see here? Does everyone receive these sores? Does God just throw out this plague indiscriminately on every single person? No, no, only those who willingly received the mark of the beast, only those who worshipped the image of the beast, only those who chose to identify themselves with this puppet of Satan will receive this expression of God's wrath. Please note it on your outline. Bowl number one, we see painful sores. That is, those who took the mark of the beast are now marked by God. 
Those who took the mark of the beast are now marked by God. And the language that is used here to describe these sores, they refer to an inflamed, running, malignant sore or boil that refuses to be healed. It just seems to stay open. It festers, bringing misery and pain. And I would remind you that this is similar. This is similar to what God did in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 9, where God struck the Egyptians with painful boils over their bodies. And in fact, these, these, these were so painful that Pharaoh's magicians, his miracle workers, were unable to even stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron because of the pain. So the mark of the beast, it has become the mark of judgment. All those who received the mark, all those who gave themselves over to idolatry, they are now here struck by God. And yet what is so unbelievably sad is that instead of repenting, instead of learning from this judgment, what do we see? We'll see it in the text. They become hardened and angry and they curse God because of the pain, because of the boils, because of the sores. And this should remind us of another man in the Bible who experienced a similar kind of physical pain. His name was Job. God allowed Job to be tested. God allowed Job to be afflicted by Satan so that the genuineness of his faith would be seen. And God did this for Job's own benefit, that he would come to see more of God and to know more of God and more of his glory and more of his sustaining grace. Job, who lost his children, he lost his wealth, his livestock, he lost his financial well-being, and then he completely lost any any uh, a sense of physical well-being as he was afflicted with sores and pain all over his body. And in that condition, do you know what he was encouraged to do? Curse God and die, Job. Just curse God and die, Job. And he got this advice from his wife of all people. Just, just curse God, Job, and be done with it and die. Job would not. He would not curse God and die. He chose to remain humble before God. And he said back to his wife in Job 2.10, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then this word of commentary and all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Brothers and sisters, it... It should be obvious, but I will say it anyway. There is no life, there is no joy, there is no peace to be found in cursing God. Rather, we are, we are told that God gives grace to the humble, that God lifts up the humble. We read in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He does. He cares for you. 
And there is joy to be found in humility. There is joy to be found in trusting God and in resting in His grace even when life does not seem to make sense. And even when life is hard and 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 it is difficult. We remember that God does indeed care for us and He is working even in the most difficult of moments like He was in Job's life to bring us to a greater awareness of Him and His glory and His grace. And so in this first bull judgment, we see that God is just and He is wise in His timing. We see that God marks those who received the mark of the beast. We see that God gives them a very tangible reminder of the consequences of their sin. Now we move to the next bull. Bull number two, look at verse three. We read this. The second angel poured out his bull into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and say, I don't like that one bit. I happen to like the ocean. I'm, I'm a big fan of vacationing at, at the beach. I like the beach. I like the sand. I like eating sushi. The thought of all of these animals being dead. This sounds horrible. This sounds terrible. You think? That's, that's exactly the point. This is horrible. This is absolutely terrible. Please note it on your outline. This is so significant. In bowl number two, we see the sea is destroyed. That is, God vividly and powerfully displays the effects of sin in His creation. Now, earlier in the, in the trumpet judgments in chapter 8, a third of the sea had been ruined. It had been polluted. A third of the sea had been turned into blood. But here, it is all ruined. Every ocean destroyed, becoming thick and coagulated like the blood of a dead person. All the sea creatures are now dead and gone. The oceans, which, which are so beautiful, the oceans, which, which we think of as being so full of life, the oceans, which are such a good gift from God to us, they now become a reflection of sin. They become a reflection of the consequences of the wages of sin. They become useless, disgusting, stinking. They become a place of death. And remember, brothers and sisters, God created the oceans. God created the oceans. He spoke them into existence. He filled them with life as a testimony to His glory, as a testimony to His power. God did this for the good of mankind, to bless mankind, that we would enjoy His creation, that we would enjoy His glory. And now, in wrath, God withdraws that blessing. He, he takes it away. He makes the oceans a picture of death, which is where sin always leads. It leads to death and to separation from God. But there's more. Look at bowl number three. Look at verses four to seven. We read this. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, now hold on for a second, because that's weird. You're like, what? There's an angel in, 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 in charge of the waters? Yes, apparently so. And what does this angel in charge of the waters think about what, what God just did, turning these rivers and springs into blood? I think I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, you can't do that, God. I'm in charge of these waters. They're supposed to be for the benefit of mankind. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. Not at all. What does this angel say that God had given charge over the waters? What does this angel say in response to this judgment? He says, quote, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, now stop there, that's strange, right? Now we have an angel in charge of the water speaking, and now we have the altar speaking? What is happening? How can the altar speak? Remember what we read earlier? Remember back in Revelation chapter 6 where we saw those who had been killed and martyred for their faith in Christ and they were under the altar and they were crying out to God. Most likely this now represents their sentiment and their prayers and their thinking. And what do they say? They say, yes, Lord God the Almighty True and just are your judgments. Please note it on your outline. Bowl number three. Rivers and springs are turned to blood. We see that God's wrath, when it is expressed, it is always just and appropriate. It is always just and appropriate. We are reminded here, the text reminds us, that the beast and those who followed the beast, they did not hesitate to shed the blood of the saints, to shed the blood of Christians, to spill the blood of those who were faithful to Jesus. And so now here, God gives them blood to drink. He gives them blood to drink. Remember, like with Pharaoh, the judgment fits the crime. Like with Haman, the judgment fits the crime. Like with King Saul. Do you remember King Saul? King Saul, the first king of Israel. King Saul who refused to obey God, who refused to destroy the, the, the Amalekites when God called him to do so. Guess what? King Saul later died in battle fighting the Amalekites. I agree with a commentator, Simon Kistemacher, who writes this in his commentary. He writes, No one can accuse God of being hasty in His judgment. For the Almighty has demonstrated extraordinary patience, warning the people repeatedly while they scornfully refuse to repent. No one can charge Him with injustice, for He passes judgment that accords with truth and justice. He is right he is right. And so as we look at verses 4 to 7, notice the way that God is described. Notice the way that, that, that what God is said to be. In verse 5, the angel in charge of the waters, what does he say? He says, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Then what do we read in verse 7? The altar, the saints under the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty. 
you say, what's the point? Here's the point. If we actually believe and understand what these words mean, it will radically change the way we think about justice and judgment and the reality of who God is. If we, if we really believe that God is the Holy One, the eternal Holy One, if we really believe that God is Lord God the Almighty, it will dramatically change the way that we think about sin and justice and God's wrath. Think about it like this. And I know that this is a silly illustration, but hopefully it will help to make the point. Consider this question, okay? What is the penalty? What is the punishment for me lying to a class of kindergartners? Okay. Now, to be sure, I'm not advocating for lying to kindergartners. Okay. I myself at one time was a cute little kindergartner, and it, and, and 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 it's a horrible thing to lie to to lie to kindergartners. Okay. But still, think about it. What is the penalty? What is the consequence of lying to a class of kindergartners? What are they going to do to me? Not share their snack? Break my crayons in two? Perhaps not invite me to their Paw Patrol themed birthday party. Okay, fair enough. But now consider a different question. What is the penalty? What is the punishment for lying to, for offending a U.S. Marshal, a state trooper, a police officer, an FBI agent, Congress, the President of the United States? It's the same action. Same action. I lied. I did the same thing, just to two different groups. And yet all of a sudden, the consequences that are coming to mind are radically different. And they are much more serious. We have gone from broken crayons to massive fines to years in prison to consequences that could impact me for the rest of my life here on earth. Now, one last question. What is the penalty? What is the punishment? for lying to and for offending God, if he really is the Holy One, the eternal Holy One who was and who is. What is the punishment for offending Lord God, the Almighty? Do you see the seriousness of what is now being described in this text? The consequences are as eternal as God himself is eternal. Listen, the offense is immense. It is greater than we could ever know because he is holy. The penalty is devastating. It is separation from God, away from his goodness, away from any expression of his grace. But the good news is, and this this whole text is built upon the foundation of the gospel and the reality that there is life and there is forgiveness and there is joy to be found in Jesus Christ. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way to be made right with the Holy One. There is a way to know God, not as judge, but as Father. Jesus came to rescue those who had offended the Holy One. Jesus came that we might be changed and transformed into the likeness and image of Christ. Jesus who came to die on the cross to take the wrath that we deserve and He gives us His righteousness. He gives us His life. He forgives us. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? We might become the righteousness of God. So even as we look at this scene of judgment and wrath, it should serve to remind us, brothers and sisters, of what we have received in Christ, of the life and the safety and the joy that is available in Jesus Christ to anyone and to everyone who will humble themselves and come to Christ in faith and repentance. There is such joy to be found in Christ, and this chapter reminds us of what we face if we stubbornly harden our hearts and walk away from Christ and go our own way and pursue our sin. So with that in mind, let's look at the fourth bowl. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed. They cursed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Please note it on your outline. Bowl number four, we see the scorching sun, and we see that the sinful, hardened heart, it would rather curse than repent would rather curse than repent. This is an incredible scene here. God turns the sun. Oh, man, and, and we in Indiana, we love the sun. Oh, it is so good when the sun is out. And during winter months, we long for the sun and for the warmth of the sun. And yet here, God, he turns the sun from a blessing into a tool of judgment to bring heat and fierce pain. And again, what's so amazing about the text is that people know that it is God who is bringing this judgment. They know that this is the work of God, but instead of seeking Him, instead of humbling themselves and finding forgiveness in Christ, they would rather curse. They would rather curse God and cling to their pride. Robert Thomas, in his commentary, has a very insightful comment on this scene. He writes this, quote, This is the only visional portion of the book that speaks of widespread human blasphemy. The other references being to blasphemy from the beast. Now, here's the point. These men have now taken on the character of the God whom they serve. They blame God for the first four plagues rather than blaming their own sinfulness. He's right. He's right. They, they come to mirror and image the beast. And, and, and the, I'll just throw this in for free. Uh, you always become like what you worship. You become like what you love. You become like what you crave and desire and thirst after either sin and idolatry or the God of glory and grace, but you do become like what you worship. But as we look at this scene, remember this. Blaming is not repenting. Complaining is not repenting. Hating consequences is not repenting. Repentance is a change. It is a turning from sin to Christ. Repentance involves, listen, repentance always involves calling sin what it is. It involves seeking forgiveness in the work of Christ, not in my own merit, not in, not in my own goodness. And yet, sadly, the blind, sinful human heart, it would rather curse than repent. 
And again, all of this should remind us once again of just how much we need God's grace. We daily, moment by moment, need God's grace that we don't become blind to the reality, to the spiritual realities that we face and walk through every day. Now, let's look at the fifth plague. Look at verses 10 to 11. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Please note it on your outline. We see in bowl number five, intense darkness. That is, God exposes. He exposes the kingdom of the beast for what it really is. The beast. The kingdom of the beast. It looked like power. It looked like strength. It looked like life and freedom and dominance and victory. In fact, do you remember what the people who worship the beast, who follow the beast, do you remember what they said back in chapter 13? They said, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Well, there's an answer to that question. There's, there's a very obvious answer to that question. What really is the beast? What really is his kingdom? It is helpless. It is darkness. It is pain. It is misery. I mean, here we see in the text, the beast is helpless to turn the lights on. He sits in darkness in the midst of his kingdom. Why? Because God says so. Because God turns the lights out on him and he brings upon them this supernatural thick darkness that is intense and felt. The people in his kingdom, they are not celebrating. They are not rejoicing. They are not having a good time. They are pictured here as gnawing their tongues in pain, trying to find some distraction from the pain of the sores and, and, and the boils. There is no entertainment. There is no fun to be found here as they sit in a blanket of oppressive darkness. And remember this. What did we read earlier that Jesus said from John 3? People love darkness. People, people wanted the darkness. They craved the darkness. And so God lets them experience what that is like. And God exposes the reality of what's really happening in this situation. What's really happening in this kingdom. But we're still not done. Look at the sixth bowl next. Look at verses 12 to 13. Sorry, 12 to 16. We read this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Yes, it's supposed to be gross. And then we read, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, stop there for just a moment. All of a sudden, now, next in verse 15, Jesus breaks into the scene. Jesus breaks into this bull judgment and Jesus speaks. And what does he say? Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake. And he doesn't mean who stays awake during my sermon. No, Jesus is saying blessed is the one who stays attentive, who stays alert, who stays mindful of my word, who stays ready, dressed in my righteousness, prepared for my coming. Jesus said blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then, in verse 16, we return to this scene of judgment where Satan is here gathering all the kings of the world together, and we read this. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Please note it on your outline. Bowl number six. We see the river dries and the frogs are released. That is to say, God is setting the stage. God is setting the stage. He is preparing the way for the destruction of his enemies. Now, that was a big chunk. Those are a lot of verses. That's a big, bold judgment. This is vivid here. There is dramatic imagery. Multiple things are happening here. But brothers and sisters, don't you dare lose sight of the main point. The main point here is that God is working. God is at work to gather together his enemies for their ultimate destruction. And God is even using, he is allowing the deception of Satan as he assembles the kings of earth For as verse 14 calls it, the great day of God the Almighty. So, what exactly do we see happening here? Well, we see that the great Euphrates River, it dries up. Why? Well, this clears the way. It makes it easy for the kings from the east to come and to gather together. And then we see the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, the second beast, known as the false prophet. They all produce something that looks like frogs out of their mouth. That is so gross. That is, that is so strange. That is so bizarre. Yes, it is meant to be so. You're, you're not supposed to think this is normal. Not, oh yeah, that makes sense. Frogs came out of their mouth. No, that's not normal. That's, that's not what we would expect to happen. It is indeed gross. These frogs are pictured here as unclean animals. But listen, they're not really frogs. They're not really frogs because if they were just frogs, we could fry up some frog legs and we'd be done with the matter, but they're not really frogs. We are told that they are impressive, miracle-working demonic spirits. That's what they are. They are impressive, miracle-working demonic spirits. And these impressive, miracle-working demonic spirits, what do they do? They go out into all the world to deceive and to gather together, as, as verse 14 says, the kings of the whole world. So they go out to deceive, to gather, to call together the kings of the whole world. Why? What is the point? What is the lie that they are being told? What is the deception that is being peddled here? Most likely it is this. Come, rally to the defense of the beast, and we will finally defeat the one who turns our oceans into death. We will defeat the one who uses the sun to scorch us. We will defeat the one who takes away our drinking water, who gives us these swords. Come and bring your armies, or what is left of them, and support the beast. 
rallied to the beast, he will be victorious. We will be victorious. We will finally curse this one once and for all who brings these judgments upon us. And it's in that context of deception. It is in that context of Satan deceiving and gathering all these kings together that Jesus speaks. In verse 15, Jesus speaks and he breaks into the scene in verse 15 and he and he warns and he encourages and he says, behold, I am coming. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus says, I am about to show up. I am coming. You do not expect me. You do not understand the rule of my reign and the dominance of my power. And here, Jesus, he both warns and encourages anyone who would read this text, anyone who would read this text to be ready, to be awake, to be clothed by faith in his righteousness, to be eager and to be ready to listen to his word. And then we are told in verse 16, that the name of the location where Satan will gather his forces is called California. I'm just kidding. It's not California. It is Armageddon. And in that, have you ever, it's a big scary word that you've probably heard before. Um, I think there was a, Bruce Willis made a movie by that very title, but that has nothing to do with this. So Armageddon, that's a, that's a big scary word. So let's unpack this a little bit. On the screen behind me, you can see a map of where many scholars and commentators believe that this word Armageddon or Harmageddon or Harmageddon is, is referring to. Okay, The name Harmageddon, it literally means mount or hill country of, of Megiddo. And you can see Megiddo located up in the north. Many commentators believe that the battle, but it's not really a battle, it is a, the slaughter of Armageddon. It will stretch all the way from Megiddo in the north, all the way down to Edom and to Bozrah in, in the south. Bozrah being the capital city of, of um, Edom. Now, this is interesting. Very close to Megiddo, okay, very close, is a large valley called the Jezreel Valley. On the screens, you can see a, a picture of the Jezreel Valley. It is Beautiful. It is absolutely a beautiful place. Now, the Jezreel Valley is a very significant location that is right there next to uh, Megiddo. Countless battles have been fought there in right in the valley of, of Jezreel. If you do just a little searching on the history of, of the Jezreel Valley, it is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and we don't have time to explore that. But 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 the point is here in Revelation 16 that God indicates that this is where those final armies will be gathered and ultimately slaughtered before him. Those those who oppose him now. <laughs> Whatever you think about the name Armageddon, whatever you think about the location, again, I beg of you, don't miss the main point of this judgment. Don't miss the main point of this text. The whole point of the text is that God is sovereign and he is setting the stage. He is preparing the way for the destruction of his enemies. They are so blind. They are so deceived. They are walking right off of a cliff and they don't even know it. They don't even know it, but we're still not done. We have one last 
bold judgment to cover. Look at verses 17 to 21. We read this. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Please note it on your outline, bowl number seven. We see the final outpouring of wrath. That is, God pronounces the completion, the completion of his judgments as this last expression of wrath is poured out on the earth. Now, to be more specific, we see that this bowl is poured out where? Into the air. Into the air, meaning it seems to now impact everything that is left. Anything that is that is left, mountains are leveled, islands disappear. Babylon the Great, the capital city of, of, of the Antichrist, it is destroyed. It is made to drink the fury of God's wrath. And then we see these unimaginably huge hailstones falling from the sky and the whole earth shakes with an earthquake that has never before been felt. It is so great and immense. And as this bowl is poured out, what does God say? What do we hear from the throne of God? It is done. It is done, meaning His wrath has been poured out and it is now time to see what God does next. It is now time to celebrate and to recognize his victory. It is time to see the joy and the blessings that will follow now as Christ is further revealed in the book of Revelation. So, as we look forward now to chapter 17 and 18, what do we see? Well, we see this. God doesn't just immediately move on to the next thing. No, in chapter 17 and 18, God takes time to both explain and to rejoice in his victory. God takes time, listen, to reveal the appropriateness, the righteousness of his judgments. And he takes time to talk about and, and to help us understand how we as believers should think about these things. And I'll be the first one to say, Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, for giving us these chapters because these are such weighty, difficult things for us to think about and, and to comprehend. We need help to do so. And God gives us help in chapter 17 and 18. But as we close our time together this morning, I just want to leave you thinking about one thing. One thing. Here in Revelation 16, we see God saying, It is done. It is done as he pours out his wrath on those who are committed to their sin, on those who are dead in their sin, on those who are defiant in their sin, on those who will face his wrath as they rightfully deserve. But, brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, 
when we read about God saying, it is done, it should remind us of something else. It should remind us of what Christ said while he was on the cross. In John 19.30, Jesus said, do you remember these words? It is finished. It is finished, meaning that Christ had fulfilled the will of the Father. He had succeeded in offering up himself as the final perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus had taken upon himself the wrath that we really do deserve so that we might have life, that we might be forgiven, that we would be saved from the wrath of God, that we would have a no condemnation status placed upon us and our lives. Jesus said it is finished so that we could know fellowship and relationship with God. And so as we close this morning, may this chapter serve to motivate us to live and to rejoice and to worship under the banner of Christ, under the banner of His grace, under the banner of it is finished, under the banner of His promise to save and to rescue and to deliver and to forever love His people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we have covered so many things this morning in chapter 16 in this vivid picture that you give to us to show and to demonstrate your holiness, your character, your nature. And yet, Father, this passage also reminds us of your grace. It reminds us of your mercy. It reminds us of the forgiveness that is so freely available in Christ. God, please help us in these days to represent you well. Help us to leave this place as faithful, joy-filled ambassadors for Christ who hold out the message of the gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen. God, we pray that you would continue to save so many. God, just as you saved us, would you continue to save so many that others may know and experience your mercy, your saving power, that they would rejoice before your throne. God, we pray that you would be honored as we sing now and as we leave this place. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.